Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. John says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth." Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. All you can say is, this scroll must be a big deal. And it is. When John realized that no one was able to open this scroll, he wept loudly. And so would you, if you knew, if there really was no one to open it. Let me just tell you, as we get into what this scroll is, and again, hear me clearly, I'm not going to tell you what it represents. I'm going to tell you what it is. And when you find out what this scroll is, you realize, thank God, that there is someone who's able to open it. But when Jesus, the Lamb who has been slain, comes and He takes the scroll from the hand of His Father, listen closely to what happens here in the Scriptures. Every kind of creature, human or angelic, righteous or unrighteous, breaks into praise of the Father and the Lamb. Look closely and. Uh, Verse 11, And then I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. So when Jesus comes and takes this scroll, you're going to see that this is something that is a crucial, big final piece of something that the scriptures have been talking about all along. And we're going to lay that out tonight. So we, we do know who the lamb is, don't we, right? I mean, I don't have to take the time to turn to John chapter 1, verses 29 through 34, where John the Baptist was teaching and he sees Jesus and he says, that's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then he goes on and says, I didn't even know who he was, but I was told that the one you see the Spirit come down upon, that's the one. And when he was baptizing him, that's when he saw the Spirit come down on him. And so Jesus is the Lamb of God. We also don't have to take the time because there's so much we're going to get into tonight. 
to look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, which the Bible says that at the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so, folks, what I want you to understand is what we're about to see happen here as we begin to see the opening of the scroll and its seven seals is that. Well, I'm just going to read it to you and then I'm going to lay it out to you. The scroll is the title deed to the earth. And Jesus is the only one worthy and able to open the seals and to meet the terms necessary to redeem the earth since it's been given over to Satan for a time. And so as you're going to see the scroll, the beginning of the opening of the scroll, which we're going to get to in studies to come. The beginning of the opening of the scrolls all the way to the final seal being opened is the time in which Jesus is redeeming the earth and regaining control, full control of everything. You see, we need to look at this in full detail. And so that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to just go all the way back and lay it all out from the beginning. Go with me to Psalm chapter 24, verses 1 and 2. Psalm 24, verses 1 and 2. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who, who made everything? God did. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. You want to have some fun? Just take your highlighter and go to chapter one of Genesis and just highlight the word God. You will find in chapter one into the very beginning of chapter two, you will find God put his name 32 times. There's no question who he was trying to communicate was doing this stuff, did he? In the beginning, God and then God said and God saw and God said and God saw and God did and God saw. He put his name there 32 times. The earth is the Lord's because he founded it. Now, hopefully you do understand that Jesus himself is also God. And the Colossians, which we're going to get to, uh, well, let's go ahead and turn there. Go to Colossians chapter 1. Look at verses 15 and 16. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. He, meaning Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him, look closely, and for him. So the laying of this foundation of what this scroll is, is the fact that the earth is God's and everything in it because he made it and he made it for himself. But God does an interesting thing in the garden. Go with me to Genesis chapter 1. God made the earth for himself and everything was to be given to Jesus Yet he gives dominion to man. He gives us rule and authority over the earth. Look at Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And, he said, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And what? 
have dominion or rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over the living, every living thing that moves on the earth. By the way, I don't want to get too many people mad at me. Let me just say this as nicely as I can. All the tree-hugging animals are more important than people stuff that you see in the world today goes against what God's saying. He gave us dominion over them, not them to rule over us. They don't have to have more value than man. We see all these people. I saw on the news tonight that this bear actually killed this guy's dog and actually attacked him in his backyard. And there are all these people now that are stopping to say, hey, don't go after the bears. That's not nice. But nobody's talking about babies being born. Then we're, all, we're, we're on that same level. Exactly. Exactly. So I just want you to understand where all that stuff's coming from. God gave man dominion over the animals. Oh, and by the way, when Adam and Eve sinned, what did God do to an animal to make a covering for Adam and Eve? He killed an animal. By the way, this dominion that God had been given, he, it was his dominion even to the point that Adam got to name the animals. God didn't name the animals. He gave dominion to Adam. He gave it to him and said, look, you're in charge over all this. I've given you rule over all this stuff. But something happened. When man sinned by disobeying God and obeying the voice of Satan and eating from the tree that God had said not to eat from, three things happened. Adam and Eve spiritually died. I want you to put this down in your notes in this way because we're going to come back to it later. It's very, very important. First thing that happened is Adam and Eve spiritually died. They had been able to walk in the presence of God because God is spirit. And even though they weren't spirit, they had spirits that were alive and were able to have fellowship with God. They walked with him, talked with him. They recognized him in the cool of the day when he walked in the garden. But what happened after they had sinned? They started to hide from him. Why? Because their relationship had been severed because they were no longer spiritually alive. And they were afraid to be in his presence. Just as a quick aside, you know, for years I've wrestled, and some of you probably have as well, with the fact that um, they were naked and felt no shame. And how in the world could they be naked and not realize they were naked? I think Adam and Eve had a glory just like God. I believe they had a Shekinah glory that was so, even though they were naked, they had a glow and a glory that kind of hovered around them, if you will, to the point that it wasn't that noticeable that they were naked. But the moment that they sinned, I believe they lost their glory. Oh, there's tons more evidence of this, and we don't have time to go into it, and that's not where we're going tonight. But let me just remind you, what happened to Moses when he hung out just for 40 days with God on the mountain? He started to have just a reflective glow that was so supernatural, it stuck on him when he went and talked to other people. And they were like, whoa, dude, you're, you're glowing. And he had to cover his face so that people wouldn't be, just even being in God's presence, there's a reflective glory. I think Adam and Eve had a glory because they were made in his image and they were naked and felt no shame because the glory was such they didn't really even notice the nakedness. But the moment they sinned, the glory was gone. And the second thing happened is their bodies were then cursed and they began to die. Their bodies then began to die. What did God say? Because you've done this, you're now going to go back to the dust of the earth. They spiritually died and their bodies began to die. And the third thing happened the earth was cursed. And God said, cursed is the ground now because of this. And it's going to produce thorns and thistles. As beautiful as parts of this world are, it's still under a curse. I can't wait. I cannot wait until the day. Well, I actually had a privilege of a friend took me today to see his boat that he just bought. So this afternoon I was actually... We didn't go sailing on it. It was at the Yacht Club, and we were just checking it all out. And isn't that a beautiful area that we live in right here to be in such a beautiful place? 
But as you just stood there, and even though it was beautiful, you could still see all the junk floating in the river, and the water's really not as clean as it used to be if you've been here for any length of time. And man, it's under a curse. As beautiful as where we live, it's under a curse. So we're going to deal with that more later. So just keep that in your notes. Three things happened. Adam and Eve spiritually died, their bodies began to die, and the earth was cursed. All right? Now, something also happened that I want to then lay out that the scroll is dealing with. Also, by obeying Satan instead of God, Adam and Eve gave their dominion over to Satan. You see, God had made everything and it's his, but he gave rule over to man. But when man chose to follow Satan and obey him instead of obey God, I'm working on a whole sermon series that I can't wait till God shows me when I'm supposed to preach it. But it starts in Genesis chapter three and the sermon series is entitled this. I know what God said, but I think. Isn't that what Adam and Eve did? Folks, I, I cannot, I mean, heart, it's everything in me not to start preaching what God's been showing me about that all the way through the scriptures. That's something we all have to wrestle with. I know what God said, but it sure looks pleasing to the eye and good for food. And this, this snake says it's going to be okay. And I know what God said, but I think. You wouldn't believe how much I deal with as I travel all over the country. People who have no understanding of the scriptures or they have a little understanding, but they're more interested in what they think. I know what the word says, but don't you think? That's what I hear all the time. People building their theology over human reasoning. They don't even say, I think. They say, but wouldn't it make sense that, but what does the Bible say? I know what the Bible says, but don't you think? Oh, you get me preaching that, and that's not what I'm here for to do tonight. Go to Luke chapter 4. Go to Luke chapter 4. Our gifts, by the way, are curses sometimes. God's blessed me with a mind that understands and memorizes most of this book, but the curse is I want to preach it all to you tonight, or each night. Look at Luke chapter 4. Look at what what Satan says to to Jesus in the temptation there in the wilderness. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It's written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. In a moment of time. And he said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory. Look closely what Satan says, for it has been delivered to me. And I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. By the way, if Jesus had bowed down to Satan, do you think Satan would really give him all authority at that moment? No, all he's wanting him to do is sin once so he can't be that perfect sacrifice and he can't do what this scroll is going to represent or actually deals with. Go go to John chapter uh, 14. I want you to not just build your theology from one passage of Scripture, but from many passages put together that all come in agreement so that you know you have a correct interpretation of Scripture. In John chapter 14, look at verse 30. John chapter 14, verse 30. And that would make a whole lot more sense if I was in John instead of Luke. I'm looking at it going, why does that not read what it's supposed to say? John 14, verse 30, Jesus says, I will no longer talk much with you. For who? 
The ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father and rise. Let us go from here. Who's Jesus talking about here? He's described as the ruler of this world. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Look at verses 3 and 4. Second Corinthians 4, verse 3, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, there it is again, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Again, Satan's described as the God of this world. Satan came to Jesus and said, All this has been given to me, and I give it to whom I will. When did he get it? When man who had been given the dominion subleased it to Satan. But there's more. If we're going to be faithful to Scripture, I'm not just going to give you a couple of verses. We're going to deal with more because we need to build a deeper, correct understanding of how this whole Satan being the ruler of this world really is developed according to the Scripture. So go back to the Gospel of John. And there's something in chapter 12 that Jesus said that I didn't go to right away because I wanted to lay that other foundation and then kind of take you in a direction that you may be surprised to see. And John chapter 12, look at verse 31. Jesus, again, right before the cross, says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. What's he referring to here? When Jesus said, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. What's he pointing to? The cross. So at the cross, the ruler of this world will be cast out. That's why Jesus says, He has no claim on me. Because he's about to do something that's going to defeat Satan. And we're not going to turn there because most of you could probably quote it. But in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, what did Jesus say before he said, go and make disciples of all people and baptize the name of the Father? He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So is Satan still the ruler of this world? You want to say no. Didn't Paul, after this, describe him as the God of this world? Didn't Jesus describe him as the God of this world? Small g. Well, how do we deal with this then? I mean, he's obviously at some point the ruler of this world, and at some point still he's the God of this world, yet Jesus said he's going to be cast out when I go to the cross, yet at the same time, all authority has been given to Jesus. Well, if you, again, read your Bibles, the answer is in Hebrews chapter 2. Go to Hebrews chapter 2. Look at verses 5 through 17. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 17. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking, it has been testified somewhere. By the way, I love this. The, the Hebrew writer is quoting from Psalm 8. And the Hebrew writer says, it's written somewhere. Doesn't that make some of you feel better when you can't pull the address up? I love it. It's written somewhere. What is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a while a little lower than the angels and you've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. Did you catch that? 
At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect or complete through suffering. Keep reading. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I'll sing your praise. And again, I'll put my trust in him. And again, behold, and I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So he's already destroyed him. And deliver all... Those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery, for surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. In this area that the Hebrew writer is laying out that Jesus is not only greater than the angels, and that fact that he not only died, he didn't die for the angels, but he died for us humans, and he had to be made like us to be able to be that sacrifice on our behalf, in the midst of it, he says, everything has already been given to him. Yet, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Why? Because God has a purpose and a plan for everything. And that's why when his disciples came to him in Acts chapter 1 and says, Are you at this time going to restore Israel? He said, It's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the innermost parts of the earth. Just do what I've asked you to do in the meantime. You just stay faithful to what I've called you to. My father's got a plan and a season, and it's already all laid out. I could take it to Acts 17, where the Bible already says he has already set the day of judgment. It's already been set. It's not random. It's been set. And the Father has a purpose and a reason and a season and a parent plan. And if you remember, as we've laid out way back in the beginning, the different dispensations and the way God worked at different times, he has a purpose for each of those seasons. We have to be careful, those of us who want so bad to take the blood moons and predict. I've been telling people all along, is God, was God doing something through the blood moons? Yes. What? Don't know. He's definitely getting people's attention. Half of those things, though, couldn't be seen from Israel. Was it something that he was doing to get Israel's attention? Not the ones in Israel, at least not all of them. But remember, the Jews are still scattered. They haven't all, they're, they're, they're little by little starting to go back, and they're, not, they're being regathered. Ezekiel 37 is happening, but is he getting their attention? Yes. Is he getting the world's attention? Yes. What's he doing? Don't go any farther than that. And those people try to write books and say, hey, that means that in 2015, this is going to happen. And we've got the seven year cycles all figured out and the 70 year cycles all figured out. We've got to be careful. Let me also say this along this same line. Some of you have probably grown up in churches where they have taught you that you have dominion over Satan. Where you can just bind Satan. If Jesus, whom all authority has been given to him, is not exercising that full authority who are you to think that you can exercise that full authority over Satan and just bind him? The angels, when fighting with Satan over the body of Moses, didn't even dare say anything. They said, the Lord rebuke you. And the angels are far more powerful than you and I are. 
We are to submit ourselves, therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he leaves because of whose robe we backed up into. Folks, be careful of those who take one scripture here or a scripture there, because greater is he who's in you than he's in the world. Yes, greater is he who is in you. You don't have dominion over him. Jesus does. But for some reason and for God's purposes, he has not yet fully exercised that dominion. Oh, that leads us to what the scroll is, though. Because three things happened in the garden. Do you remember those three things that happened in the garden? The first thing was what? They spiritually died. Oh, by the way, at the cross and through Jesus' death, burial, and his resurrection, all three of those curses were dealt with all at the same time. But he's going to exercise our experiencing the fulfillment of how they benefit us in order. When Jesus died on the cross, he paid for the sins of the world. But if, if anyone would receive it, they become the bride of Christ. We're not going to take the time to turn there. But if you look later on at Deuteronomy chapter 25, you'll see that God set up a law of redeeming the bride. You see, it said if the man was married to this lady and he didn't produce any children, a relative, a brother or a near relative was to take her and to make her his bride and re redeem her. We know the Ruth and Boaz story. What happened to you spiritually when you got saved? You were spiritually made alive. Go with me real quick to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, look at verses 21 through 24. Jesus is speaking, he says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son doesn't honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you. By the way, when Jesus says truly, truly, does he really mean it then? Uh, you got to be careful. I, I, I like to watch court shows, you know. I like to watch Judge Judy and some of these court shows. Because it's nap time, and that's right at nap time, and I can watch a little bit, listen to them fight, and go to sleep. And I always love it when someone's standing there before the judge says, to be honest with you, judge. And I always think to myself, were you not being honest before you said that? Is Jesus, when he says, truly, truly, I say to you, mean that the other times he wasn't truly? Of course, everything he says is truth. So when Jesus says, truly, truly, he's not saying, scout's honor, or cross my heart and hope to die. He's saying, if you miss anything of the truth that I've said, don't miss this truth. This is pertinent, is good. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has, not one day will have, has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Isn't that awesome? If you've been born again of the Spirit and He's given you salvation, sealed you with His Spirit, you are spiritually alive. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, He is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. What did Jesus tell? Go to John chapter 11 real quick. John chapter 11, verses 25 through 27. Look at what Jesus said to Martha. In chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Isn't that weird? 
Listen to what he says. Sounds like he's talking out of both sides of his mouth. Whoever believes in me, though he, who lives, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. What's he saying? He's saying, if you believe in me, you're alive spiritually, even though your body dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die spiritually. All right, so what did Jesus take care of at the cross? Remember, there are three things that happened in the garden. They spiritually died. It was paid for and taken care of at the cross. And when you enter into a relationship with God, you are born again at that moment. You are spiritually alive at that moment. That's been taken care of. Hallelujah. What was the second thing, though, that happened in the garden when they sinned? Their bodies began to die. Remember, Jesus is even referencing it here. Even though you're spiritually alive, your body may still die. Even though we're now spiritually alive, our bodies are not redeemed yet. Paul even talked about that, didn't he? In Romans chapter 7, we don't have time to turn there either. In Romans chapter 7, he said, the things I want to do, I don't. Things I don't want to do, I do. He even said twice, it's no longer I who do it, it's sin living in me. Oh, who can save me from this body of death? In other words, even though Paul knew he was spiritually alive, he still wrestled with the flesh. That's why daily we have to lay our bodies on the altar as a living sacrifice. Not be conformed to the pattern of this world, which is living for self, but to be transformed by the daily renewing of our mind. We need to lay our flesh on the altar every single day. His mercies are new every morning. Outwardly, we're wasting away. Inwardly, we're being renewed day by day. Folks, let me just tell you, when do we get our new bodies? According to the scriptures, at the rapture. Again, for the sake of time, we won't have time to get into all that. But let me just remind you of some scriptures. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18 says, We don't grieve like the rest of men who, ha- who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And we also believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. And then he goes on and says how their bodies are going to come out of the ground. And we who are alive are going to be caught up to go be with him. Paul said, let me tell you a secret. Let me tell you a mystery. Not all of us are going to die. Not all of us are going to sleep, but we're all going to be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, when the mortal takes on immortality, we're going to... Be raptured. And when that rapture happens is when we get our new body. But, you know, God set up, like I told you in Leviticus, sorry, Deuteronomy 25, a law for redeeming the bride. He also set up a law for redeeming the slave. Oh, and I don't know if you know this or not, but Paul said in Romans chapter six that our bodies are still slaves to sin. And the Leviticus, again, for later time, you can look at Leviticus chapter 25, you'll see that there were laws set up for redeeming the slave. Every so many years they had to be set free and so on. And so I want you to understand that God set it up that the slave would be set free. And Jesus took care of that as well at the cross through his death and his burial and his what? And through his resurrection, he defeated death. Well, at the rapture is when we get our new bodies. There's a third thing, though, left. What's that? The earth. Remember, the earth was cursed as well. At this point in Revelation, when Jesus takes the scroll, the church has not only been made spiritually alive, we've also received what? Our new bodies at the rapture. Remember, the church is already there around the throne with Jesus, worshiping him. They've already received their new bodies. The next curse to be redeemed is the curse on the earth. Go to Romans chapter 18. Romans, did I say chapter 18? Thank you, chapter 8. 
And I'm also going to scratch a one out of my notes for some reason, because we're starting in verse 18. I wrote Romans 18, 18. It's Romans 8, 18 through 25. Yeah, somewhere it is written. That's a good point. <laughs> it's somewhere in Romans. Probably not chapter 18. All right. Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. Look closely what Paul says here. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that be, is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Do you see the order here, folks? Do you see in the context there's an order? Creation is waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. Because creation knows that after the sons of God are revealed, creation's next in experiencing the freedom that the sons of God have already experienced. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Look closely. There were three things that happened in the garden. Spiritually they died, their bodies began to die, and the earth was cursed. Jesus defeated all of those issues at the cross and through his resurrection. We experience at the moment of salvation our spirits being made alive. We will not experience our bodies being redeemed until the rapture. Those who have already gone to be with the Lord, they're present with the Lord. But they're going to come with him when he comes to rapture his church. They're going to come. Their bodies are going to come out of the ground and they'll go get their new bodies at that time. And we who are alive will be caught up to go be with him. And that's when we get our new bodies. But here in the context, creation is saying, we're next. Because you can see it's waiting to experience what at the time creation experiences when it is set free from its curse man has already experienced. Do you see it in the context? So at this point, when Jesus takes the scroll, the bride's already been redeemed. Their bodies have been redeemed, the slave. And now the earth is going to be redeemed. And the scroll is very important to all this. You see, we have to look at the law of redemption for the earth. Go to Leviticus chapter 25. God, again, set up three laws of redemption pointing to these three things when he gave the nation of Israel their rules and regulations. Leviticus chapter 25, and look at verses 23 through 25. It says, the land shall not be sold in perpetuity. Why? Because God says, for the land is mine. In other words, you can't sell it and it's theirs forever, because even though it's yours for a time, it's always been mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me, Moses says, and, all, and in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. In other words, if property had been given, remember, when God gave the nation of Israel the land, he divided into the different nations. This part goes to this nation. This part goes to this nation. The Levites didn't get any inheritance of the land. Yes, ma'am. 
Did I say nations yet? They're in twelves. Thank you. I get going so fast, sometimes I mess my words up. The 12 tribes were all given portions of the land. The Levites didn't get any because they were to be the priests and God was to be their, their provision. But the, the tribes were all given different sections of the land. But he said if someone loses that land because of poverty and has to sell it, a relative is to get it back. Boy, isn't that a picture of what's to come? So, go ahead. Well... What's to come is, well, we've already just talked about, the earth is the Lord's. It's not to be sold forever and ever because it's the Lord's. He gave it to us. We were given dominion. What did we do? We lost it. The only way we can get it back is if a relative of ours gets it back for us. Did you catch that passage in Hebrews 2 now? Is that making a whole lot more sense? He had to be made like his brothers in every way. That's the only way he can be the one who meets the terms. But let me tell you something. Judge Judy can't even help him. Man, I know. Go to me to Jeremiah 32, though, and look at something cool. Jeremiah 32. Jeremiah 32. Look at verses 6 through 15. Jeremiah said... The word of the Lord came to me. Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you and say, By my field that is at Anatoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. Then Hanamel, my cousin, came to me in the court of the guard in accordance with the word of the Lord and said to me, By my field that is at Anatoth in the land of Benjamin, for the right of redemption or possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. That's another whole sermon for another time, how that's how we get confirmation we heard from God is when it happens. And I bought the field at Anatoth from Hanamel, my cousin, and I weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deed, sealed it, got witnesses, and weighed the money on scales. Then I took, look closely, the sealed deed of purchase containing the terms and the conditions and the open copy. And I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, the son of Mahasa, in the presence of Hanamel, my cousin, in the presence of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase, and in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting in the court of the guard. I charged Baruch in their presence, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, both this sealed deed of purchase and this open deed and put them in an earthenware vessel that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. Look closely. The terms for the redeeming of the land were written on a scroll and sealed. What is the scroll with the seals? It's the title deed to the earth. At this point, when John is told, come up here and I'll show you what's going to take place after this, after the church age. He's brought up in the spirit into the presence of God in the throne. He sees the full living creatures. He sees the church around the throne. And then he sees a scroll and there was no one able to open it. And he wept and he was told, relax, there actually is someone able. It's one of the tribe of David, the Lion of Judah, the Lamb of God. And Jesus comes and he takes the scroll. And when he takes the scroll, 
What does everybody begin to say? Go back to Revelation. Go back to Revelation chapter 5. Now look closely at what happens when he grabs the scroll. It's all of a sudden going to start exploding. Verse 6. Sorry, 8. Verse 8. And when he had taken the scroll, the full living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall what? Where? On the earth. At this point, Jesus begins the process of meeting the terms and the conditions of redeeming the earth. Creation is right now alive, waiting for the rapture. Because creation knows that at the redemption of our bodies, at the rapture, it's next. And at that point, Jesus is going to take a scroll, the title deed to the earth, and he's the one who's able to redeem it for us and to get it back for us. And as he opens every seal, you're going to see it start to happen. As he opens every seal, something happens on the earth, doesn't it? And he opened, he opened this seal, and something happened on the earth. And he opened this seal, and something happened on the earth. And you're going to see this is a seven-year process of the opening of the scroll and meeting the terms and the conditions to get the earth back. Let me ask you a question. Is Satan going to willingly say, okay, you met the terms, here it is? <laughs> if you've ever read Revelation, you'll know he's going to fight to the end. He doesn't keep his word. He's a liar and the father of lies. But look closely. Go with me to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11, look at verses 15 through 19. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of who? Of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who was and who, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and have, looked closely, begun to reign. This is at the end. The end of that seven year period, the nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your fear, your name, both small and great and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. And there were flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and an earthquake and heavy hail. I love how they begin to worship and they said, OK, all authority has been given to you already. Yet we do not see everything in subjection to you, but now we will. Now we will. And what does it mean? Again, when everything is in subjection to him, every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess. Whether they're animal, angel, human, righteous, unrighteous, in heaven, on the earth, under the earth. What's about to happen is we start to see Jesus open these seals on this scroll. 
is going to be the unfolding of the seven-year period of the tribulation period and Jesus meeting the terms to get the earth back. Oh, by the end of the seven-year period, the earth's not going to look anything like it looks now. It's going to go through a tumultuous time in that process, as you're about to see. People on the earth are going to go through a tumultuous time. Thank God we won't be here for that time. But I'm going to ask you a question before we close. Since the only one who can open the seals on the scroll is Jesus, do we have any part in this event that's going to come to pass? I mean, he's the only one worthy to open the scrolls and to open the seals, open the scroll and open his seals. Do we have any part in this event? Our first reaction is to say what? You can give me your first reaction. No, right? Our first reaction is no, he's doing it. But you might have missed it. In the passage here in Revelation 5, we do have a part. And the Bible's actually been telling us what our part is for a long time. Go back to Revelation chapter 5. Look at verse 8. And when he, Jesus, had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and what? Golden bowls full of incense, which are what? The prayers of the saints. Did you, we might have missed this. You're going to see this later on. You're going to see it when we get to Revelation chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 3. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. We have a part, a part in this process. He's the only one worthy. He's the only one who's going to get the glory. But he has given us a role, and that role has supposed to have been happening even now. We are to be praying for this day to come. We're supposed to have been praying all along for Jesus to rule and to reign on this earth. We've been praying, oh, Lord, I just can't wait to go to heaven. Lord, just take me to heaven. Jesus didn't teach us to pray that way. You got it. Do you see it? Way back in Matthew chapter 6, he taught us how to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He taught us way back that we're to be praying for him to come and to rule and to reign on this earth. We're supposed to be praying for it. Go with me to Psalm 122. And for those of you that have been praying for it, when that time comes... He's going to gather all of the prayers at that moment. And they're going to be a part of his worship and his glory. Well, Psalm 122. Look at verses 1 through 9. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together to which the tribes go up. The tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. 
May they be secure who love you. Peace within your, be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and my companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. By the way, when is there going to be peace in Jerusalem? You can say it louder than that. When Jesus comes back and sets up his kingdom on the earth. Oh, there's going to be a temporary false priest at the peace that the Antichrist is going to have, but he's going to quickly show that it's not a real peace. The Bible taught us all along. Pray for his kingdom to come on this earth. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Go with me to Micah chapter 5. I know we're only supposed to read this at Christmas, but there's a whole lot more here than just Bethlehem. Listen to Micah chapter 5. Verses 2 through the beginning of verse 5. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler, where? In Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he, Jesus, shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. How do we pray for the peace of Jerusalem? We pray, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done. Oh, by the way, if he taught us to ask him for our daily bread, right? How many times are we supposed to be praying for his kingdom to come? Daily. Folks, start praying. Start praying. Lord, I, can, I don't know, and I'm not going to get caught up with all those Christians that try to predict when it's all going to happen, and they've done the math, and they can figure it all out. Oh, it's maybe going to happen here, and it might happen there. That's tempting. But Lord, you taught us to just pray for it to come. And not figure out when it's going to come, just pray for it to come. And Lord, you also said that at the end of the tribulation period, the way you separate the sheep and the goats, and we'll get to that, is that you determine those who enter the millennial kingdom, the ones who live through the tribulation, according to how they treated Israel. And yes, Lord, your word said that at the end of the tribulation period, every nation on the face of the earth will be against Israel. But that doesn't mean that I have to be one of those people. My nation may turn against you. I pray that our nation does not. But Lord, I pray for your people because your timepiece and your holy people are those people. They don't even believe in you right now, but you're doing something for your glory. And it's for your namesake, not for their namesake. You don't change. That's why Israel is not destroyed, according to what you said in Malachi chapter 3. Father, your plan all along has been for you to come back and to be on this earth and to regain control of this place. You defeated Satan at the cross. He was cast out. He's only allowed to be the God of this world because you've chosen to literally allowed to be have that. But one day you're going to take control and I ask that it comes soon. And between now and then, may I be faithful to let you be God over my life. But may I not be one of those people who turns their back on Israel. I'm praying for the peace of Jerusalem where you said you will rule and reign. Go to chapter 4 of Micah. Chapter 4 of Micah. Look at verses 1 through 7. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And it shall be lifted up above the hills and peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways 
that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from where? Jerusalem. He, Jesus, shall judge between many peoples and shall decide for strong nations far and away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them where? In Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. Folks, that is just a glimpse of the passages that are to come in this study that you don't even knew were there. How many of you even knew that that was there in Micah chapter 4? Or that in that famous Christmas passage, it was going to be right there. Folks, the Bible is full of these prophecies that have talked about the fact that there is going to be a literal kingdom on this earth. And Jesus himself will be here on the earth, ruling and reigning from that point forth forever and ever. He has been given all authority, but he's not exercising all authority. For his purposes, he's allowed Satan to have a little bit longer of a time but it's about to come to an end. The bride's been redeemed. Our bodies are still under the curse. Even though we've been made spiritually alive, we won't get our new bodies till the rapture, and neither will the ones who have gone to be with him. But when that happens, what's next? The tribulation period is going to come after that at some point. And it begins with the opening of the scroll. And you're going to see that the first seal that opens there's going to be a white horse. There's going to be someone riding on it that pretending to be Jesus, and he's not. Now you think that when we come back in a couple of weeks, we're going to go right to that first seal. Well, we can't. Because like I told you, I'm going to teach you the book of Revelation, Revelation chronologically. There's something that has to happen before he opens the first seal. And that's where we're going to go. So I'll give you a heads up. If you want to prepare for two weeks from now when we get back together... Start reading Revelation chapter 7. Because something has to happen before he opens the first seal. What is it, Jim? You'll have to come back next time for that. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you for the fact that when we take your word literally and you show us how to put it in order of how things are going to happen, all of a sudden it becomes clear. I love to see people's faces when the light dawns and they start to see it. When your spirit opens up our eyes even to... Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth. You've taught us to pray. And Lord, at that time, when you grab the scroll and everyone begins to worship, the prayers of the saints are brought before you. So, Father, between now and then, we want to fill your nostrils with that incense. It's your plan. We don't get to tell you when to do it or how to do it. We've just been taught to ask you to do it, believing that you will and to pray that it'll come. So, Father, thank you that you have a plan for that nation of Israel. Thank you that even though there's some days coming that aren't going to be a lot of fun for them, through what you're going to do in their midst, you're going to get glory forever and ever. 
And so, Lord, we pray for our nation. We pray for this election that's coming up next year. We pray that our, our, our head of this country will be someone that is pro-Israel. And we pray, Lord, that when all nations turn against Israel, it happens not right away for us as a nation, but down the road. Because we believe your word's true. But, Lord, we pray that it won't happen in our day. We want to be one of those people that you say you will bless if they bless your people. And so, Father, keep us from running ahead of you but maybe not lose sight of the fact that you have given us a role in the meantime, and that's to ask you. You've taught us all along that certain things come out by prayer and fasting. And Father, we together tonight as a group pray for Israel and for Jerusalem and for you to come. If you choose not to do it in our time, we're okay with it, but we're going to ask you again tomorrow. Please come. And if you choose not to do it tomorrow, that's okay. Because you're God and we're not. But we're going to ask you again the day after that. Because you taught us to. And you're going to line up our heart with your plan and your heart for your people. And you're actually in the midst of this. Once we start praying in this way, you are going to help us to see things as you do. And we're actually going to be glad that you're not slow in keeping your promises, some people say. But that you're giving others to repent. Other opportunity to repent. They may be saved in this meantime. It's easy for us to Lord to say, Lord, why don't you come? But we're so thankful that you haven't come before we got saved. We pray for that for those whom you've chosen. We thank you for what you're going to do. In your name we pray. Amen.